I think back in the 50s, they had the first picture that they made, and they just give the same one. I mean, uh, it always amazes me, ladies can take an ultrasound picture, and wow, he's got your nose, or the baby's got your, your forehead, and look at how thoughtful they look. And I receive it, and, and you know, look back and forth, and I, I think it just looks the same to me. It doesn't look any different. It looks the same as the one Katie brought home eight times, you know, and, and showed uh, but uh, I can't prove it, it's just a theory, but when they do the expose, you remember I'm the one who told you, okay, that I was the one who came forth with this theory. Now, they may be all the same before they were born, but they sure are different after, amen? And this really is something that's true of the friends of Jesus, how different and unique they all were. Each one had their own individual personalities and their uh, the way of doing things. And, and, of course, that's because they are us and we are them, as I've said many times. We, we are, uh, pe- people are that way. We're very different, and yet God uses each one of us. And this morning I want to look at another one of the disciples, and he will teach, I believe, teach us about ourselves as many of them already have. I don't know about you, but I sure can see myself in a lot of these different uh, friends of Jesus we're looking at. Let's start reading in Acts chapter 12, verse number 1. Acts 12, verse number 1. Now, about that time, Herod, the king, stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. We'll be looking at some other scriptures as we go through, but that's what we'll start out with this morning as we talk about James the friend of Jesus. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes together here. May we see you work in our hearts. May we uh, be submissive to what you show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in uh, Acts 12, we have Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. The Herods were Edomites. They were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob in the Old Testament. So what you have essentially here is, once again, Esau is persecuting Jacob. So when Satan wanted to hinder the work of the early church, he went after two people here. Well, they went after more, but primarily two people. They went after James and, of course, uh, went after Peter right after that. And that's what Satan does. He goes after the best Christians and tries to destroy their work. And it begs the question today, as far as you and I are concerned, are we the kind of Christians that Satan would attack? Are we a threat or a danger to this world system? I hope that is the case. It's interesting that Peter was delivered while James was permitted to die because God has a unique purpose for each of his own. So what was uh, what kind of man was James the brother of John? Uh, to begin with, I want to distinguish him because there are a number of James in Jameses in the New Testament, so we can get them confused. Uh, there was James the son of Alphaeus. That's not who we're talking about today. Uh, he was known as James the Less in Scripture. Then there was James the half-brother of Jesus. He is the one that is mentioned in Mark chapter 6 verse 3, and he's also the one that wrote the book of James. And then there is James the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, as we talked about a few weeks ago, I believe the cousin to Jesus. That's who we're talking about today, James, the brother of John. Of the three disciples in Jesus' inner circle, James is probably the least well-known. 
The Bible gives us very few details about his life and his character. He never appears as a standalone in the Gospels at all. He's always paired with his younger brother and more well-known brother, uh, John. The only time he's mentioned by himself, we just read, when he was martyred. Then he stands alone uh, there. So what uh, of the three disciples, again, uh, the, the inner circle, he was a part of that. So we know he was very close to Jesus. He was a very close friend. And it's a little ironic from a human perspective that, uh, that basic because logically he should be one of the dominating forces in the group. Between James and John, James was the eldest. That's why his name always appears first in any of the lists of the disciples. Between the two sets of brothers that you had, uh, James and John and Peter and Andrew, James and John were from a much more prominent family. Uh, we, we read about Zebedee. They're always just called the sons of Zebedee, which suggests that Zebedee was a very important man. Uh, he was apparently quite well-to-do. And Mark 1.20, it talks about how they had numerous servants to help with his business. And they uh, the family had enough status so that John was known to uh, the high priest in John 18.15. And as the oldest brother... James ought to be the main guy as an oldest brother. I feel for James. It's a pretty sad thing when a younger brother takes the spotlight, amen? I think oldest brothers, right? That's good. Oldest brothers ought to be uh, the, the main guy. It's our birthright as oldest brothers. Uh, our parents experimented on us. We need to be in the main uh, be in the spotlight. So maybe that's why there were so many disputes throughout the New Testament, as Luke twenty two twenty four says, which of them should be accounted as the greatest. Yet the only time James is first in anything is when he was martyred. James is significant, though, as a number of the twelve. In the two lists of the apostles, in Mark chapter 3 and Acts chapter 1, his name comes immediately after Peter. So there's a good reason for us to assume that he was a strong leader, probably second in influence only to Peter. Peter, James, and John, we sing about them. We read that constantly in Scripture. They made up Jesus' inner circle. There were three times in Scripture that James would have witnessed certain key elements of Jesus' ministry. The raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, if you remember that story, as Jesus went into the house, he took only three of them with him, Peter, James, and John. And then a few, a little bit later, the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. Uh, only three guys went with him, Peter, James, and John. And then there was his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples went with him into the garden, and then he took three a little further in uh, to pray with them in Mark chapter 14. Each of these experiences would have taught James a valuable lesson about death. If you were to think, think about Jairus' daughter, it showed James that Jesus is victorious over death. Uh, the uh, transfiguration showed James that Jesus is glorified in death. The Garden of Gethsemane showed James that Jesus is submitted to death. And these lessons would serve to prepare him for what was to come in his own life. But I want to look at a couple of things about James that sets him apart, some things we can learn about him. Number one, he had a nickname. If there's a key word that 
would apply to the life of James, that word would be passion. From the little we know about him, it is obvious that he was a man of enthusiastic commitment. We see in the New Testament the use of nicknames. Now, if you have a nickname, that usually means you're accepted in whatever group gives you a nickname. I think it's interesting that Jesus used nicknames. Edna Ferber said that nicknames are fond names. We do not give them to people that we dislike. It is in keeping with a group of fellows traveling together uh, that there would be constant razzing, picking on each other. That's what guys do. It's how men say, I love you, to one another. We pick on each other. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me how men and women are vastly different in this area. I can, and this happens occasionally, right out there in the foyer. Somebody will do it to me, I'll do it to somebody else. Walk up to one of our friends, and I'll pat him on the belly and say, Wow, you're getting fat there, buddy. And we can still, we can still be friends, and we laugh about it, and everything's fine. If I walk up to a lady, and I go, Wow, you're gaining some weight there, sister. We won't be friends, like ever, ever again in life. There's a big difference between men and women. Men are just different that way. They show, we show affection by picking on one another. And that's what Jesus did. He gave nicknames. In John chapter 1, Andrew brings Simon, his brother, to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. And Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. Jesus said, I'm not going to call you Simon, I'll call you Peter. Now, obviously, the name Peter is given to him to be an encouragement to, uh, to, to, to Peter, to uh, make him, him kind of develop a character towards steadfastness because Peter means a stone or a rock. He needed to be more steadfast. He was a vacillating type of individual. But Jesus gave James a different nickname. He called him and his brother Bonargus, or Sons of Thunder. And this was not a compliment. I like to call this admonishment through humor. <laughs> Jesus was in a humorous way uh, trying to, and Jesus loved James, there's no doubt about it, but this name is a reminder, hey James, don't be controlled by your passions and your temper. This leads us to conclude James' personality was one of, he was very zealous, he was bombastic, and he was passionate. You could even say, and I think we see it in Scripture, that he was endowed with a bit of a cruel streak. In fact, it was James, along with his brother, who wanted to take a whole village and nuke them with fire from heaven. So while Andrew is quietly bringing people to Jesus throughout his whole life, we've already talked about Andrew, James was a man of action. He had little patience, but he had a whole lot of passion. And that's what I want to look at this morning. He was first to be martyred is the second thing we've already seen about James. In fact, uh, he was the fact that he was first to be martyred really tells me that he was not a passive man. He was not one of those preachers who only preach about things that make people feel good. Uh, I call them motivational speakers, not necessarily preachers. We have a lot of churches led by motivational speakers today. And I got nothing against motivational speakers. We all need motivation once in a while. Just don't get behind a pulpit and just don't call it preaching if it's motivational speaking. A preacher is one who will call out sin, who will preach the Word of God as it is, who will not make apology to open it up and give the Bible as the Bible is. Now, he seems to have a style, James does, that stirred things up and he made some deadly enemies. You remember Herod? 
that killed him. Herod's the same one that had John the Baptist beheaded because John publicly condemned him. It was John's fiery public defamation against Herod himself, rolling up his sleeves and preaching against the wickedness that Herod was involved in that caused Herod to get upset enough to have his head removed. John was calling out sin. This would be in keeping with what we know about James. And can I tell you, the world is never accepting of a preacher who names sins. Somebody said this years ago, and I have found it to be true. Preaching against sin, that's okay. Preaching against sins, that stirs people up. You can call out sin in general, but you start naming them like John did, people get really upset. In fact, it was John who one day when uh, some... some uh, People showed up and, and Herod's, at least, I don't know if it was Herod himself or Herod's emissary or people that were with him, they showed up and someone tells John, hey John, uh, be real careful what you say today. And John stood up, mounted the pulpit and preached against how wicked Herod was for taking the wife he did. He wasn't scared to tell a sin as it was. Of course, he got killed for it. But there's a lack of this type of passionate preacher in our day. Elijah was that kind of character, which, by the way, Elijah was James' role model when he thought about calling fire down from heaven because that's what he did. Nehemiah was also passionate, Nehemiah 13, 25. And John the Baptist, as we mentioned, was a fiery preacher. James apparently was cut from the same cloth as these guys were. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with this type of passion. Do you remember it was Jesus who picked up a whip and he cleansed the temple? And after he did that, the disciples who were watching, probably mouths wide open, eyes as big as saucers. The Bible says in John 2.17, his disciples remember that his, it is written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. James, of all people, knew what it was like to be eat up with zeal. We can think of some of the episodes of Jesus that just got the fire stoked in James' heart. I think of Jesus when he rebuked the Jewish leaders. Whew, that had to do something for James. When he cursed the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, when he confronted uh, and destroyed demonic powers, when he cleansed the temple. I'm talking about a zeal for righteousness that Jesus had, and that resonated with James. Now, passion can be evil. Hence, crimes of passion. Passion can be bad. But passion is a virtue when you have a passion for righteousness' sake. The problem in our life is that we have the wrong passions. We don't have a passion for the right things in our life. As a matter of fact, the Bible warns against this in Romans chapter 10, verse 2. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. The passion was for wrong things. It was misdirected. And passion without wisdom is dangerous. Passion mixed with selfishness is often cruel. James struggled with this exact problem in his life, specifically in two different instances I want to point out in Scripture today. First of all, the fire from heaven incidents there. If you want to go to Luke chapter 9, that's where we find it, uh, when James and his brother wanted to call down fire from heaven. Now, Jesus is preparing to pass through Samaria. He's headed to Jerusalem for the final Passover that would culminate in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in Luke 9, verse 52, uh, I want to read a couple of verses here for you. And the Bible says, And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. 
And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Now, it was significant that Jesus chose to travel through Samaria. It was the shortest route from Galilee to Jerusalem, but Jews typically would not go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria because they hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated them as a rule. So it, it is significant that Jesus planned to go right through Samaria. And uh, he sent people ahead. He had a large party traveling with him. And so he sent some people ahead. Go find uh, the, I don't know which one was invented yet, probably Motel 6. Some of the Motel 6s I've stayed at look like they're about that old. So uh, probably go ahead and, and to the Motel 6 and, and set up some room. Make arrangements for us to stay there. And so they maybe at first they were open to the idea Samaria uh, to allow them to stay there. But something happened when it became obvious that Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem uh, and the purpose he was going, uh, then it became a problem. And they said, no way, Jose, you're not staying here. You see, the Jews not only hate, uh, the Samaritans not only hated the Jews, but they hated how the Jews worshiped at Jerusalem there. And so uh, they they had no interest in Jesus' agenda. He represented everything Jewish that they despised, and so they rejected his request. And the problem was not that there was no room in the inn. They just didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. They were being deliberately inhospitable. And it's interesting to me, because all throughout the New Testament, Jesus constantly showed goodwill to the Samaritans. Can I remind you of a few? He had healed a Samaritan of leprosy. And in fact, he had admired his thankfulness. Remember that? Uh, of the ten, one came back and he was a Samaritan in Luke 17. He accepted water from a Samaritan woman. And then he not only accepted water from her, he gave her the water of life in John chapter 4. He stayed in that woman's village for two days and ministered to her friends and neighbors. He had made a Samaritan the hero of his best known parable. The good, what? Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Later, he would command his disciples to go preach in Samaria in Acts 1.8. He had always been full of goodwill toward the Samaritans, but now they treated him with contempt. James was instantly filled with a passionate rage. How dare they treat Jesus this way? And he and his brother had a remedy all set and ready for the situation. They said, in, uh, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? James knew his Old Testament. James knew that in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah had done just that in this region. He said, let's do it again, Jesus. So when James and John, even though they had precedent for this request, after all, Elijah was not condemned for that action. Uh, it was at that time under those circumstances, it was right for Elijah to do it, but it was not the appropriate response for James and John at this time. Uh, by the way, a tone of arrogance, I, I never noticed this before until this week, is evident in the way they asked the question. Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven? I think the next obvious question is really, can you do that, guys? Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just, I, I don't know, uh, he, Jesus responded in a nicer way. But I think I would have liked to say, sure, if you can, go for it. Uh, we have tried to command rain from the heavens. It doesn't happen, does it, unless God wants it to happen. 
And so, of course, they didn't have the power. But here's what James wanted along with his brother. They wanted Jesus to give them the power to do what Jesus would not do himself. Called on fire from heaven. See, Jesus' mission was very different from Elijah's mission. Jesus said here in verse 56, For the Son of Man has not come to destroy lives, but to save them. However, there is a touch of goodness, I think, in this indignation against the Samaritans. Their zeal to defend Jesus' honor is not an altogether bad thing. It is better to get fired up uh, for it's better to get fired up with religious uh, righteous passion than to sit by and let Jesus be insulted. But Jesus showed them that kindness was a better option. And in verse 56, it says they went on to another village. They suffered inconvenience. They had to go further that day than they had wanted to go. But they did it. And they were kind to the Samaritans who, and they didn't burn a bridge there. Now, it's interesting. A few years later, Philip, a deacon, comes to this region and preaches the gospel to them. In Acts chapter 8, verse 6, the Bible says, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, and there was great joy in the city. I ask you today, if James and John had gotten their way, called down fire and nuked this area, would Philip have had a revival a few years later? Not at all. It is because of the grace that they showed here that later down the line they could have a great revival and there'd be great joy. Can I tell you that kindness toward the world around us goes a long way of making an impact for Christ. Certainly those who were saved under Philip's preaching were some of the same people that Jesus spared. And I wonder, wherever James was at the time, if he didn't rejoice when he heard it, hey, wonderful that uh, somebody, uh, some of these Samaritans got saved. James, Jesus could well look at James and say the words, I like your passion, but make sure that you spend it wisely. So I have a question for you this morning. What are you passionate about? What lights your fire? in your life. In October, or sorry, September of 1993, I met a girl named Katie Hall that began a relationship that's still going 30 years later. It's getting pretty serious, I got to be honest. But we began to eat meals together and, and at the college cafeteria, and then we spent basically every minute that we could scratch together to spend uh, time with each other. And when winter break came and the summer months came, we were apart. And this was 10 years before cell phones. I know there's younger people going, what? It's no cell phone? There was life before cell phones. That's what the letters BC mean, before cell, okay? There was life. People lived before cell phones. And, uh, but what we, so we didn't have cell phones. We had, uh, that wonderful invention, pay phones. And when it was pay phones, it should, they should have been called pay a lot phones instead of just pay phones. We had to buy calling cards. Remember those old folks? Calling cards? And we had to, uh, and we started investing all kinds of money in these calling cards. Hundreds a month we spent on calling cards. We. Hundreds a month I spent on calling cards <laughs> to call, uh, to be able to communicate. And you might look at that and say, my, but you are sure passionate about phone cards. No, 
I didn't care about phone calls. I was passionate about hers, what I was passionate about. We use the phone as a tool for feeding, maintaining, and developing the passion we had for one another. No one talked me into using phones because of the wonderful uh, benefits of phone usage. It was our passion for one another that drove us, not the passion for the phone. And can I tell you today that prayer, the Word of God, the local church, these are our spiritual telephone to the Lord. It is the means by which God communicates with us and keeps in touch with us. We do not need to restore our passion for the means. We need to restore our passion for God, and then nobody has to talk us into reading our Bible. No one's got to beg us to pray. No one has to call us on the phone 10 times to get us to come to church because we've got a passion for God and we're going to go use the phone, so to speak. You'll get involved in what you're passionate about. Yeah, I, have, I have a friend in Michigan who's passionate about goats. Goats. How could anyone be passionate about goats? I got nothing against goats. I don't care about goats. But she buys them sells them, breeds them, she raises them, she drinks goat milk, makes goat cheese, uh, goat soap, everything's goat, goat, goat. Facebook posts all about goats. Me, I could care less about goats. Most people could care less about goats. In fact, I read this each year, 16, 16 people get attacked by sharks every year. 6,000 people get attacked by goats every year. I, this is, I'm just warning you, that's da- goats are dangerous. We don't need shark week, we need goat week on Discovery Channel, just to warn us. But I'm simply saying, nobody has to talk her into, her into the goat life. Nobody's got to remind her, try to get her to talk about goats. It's all she's passionate about. And so she talks about it and she uh, lives it. She'll work it into every conversation. And can I tell you, friend, you will do what you're passionate about. You'll talk about what you're passionate about. We just have the wrong passions. Question for you this morning. Are you passionate about the things of God? Dennis Diderot said, only passion, great passion can elevate the human soul to achieve great things. James had some shortcomings in his life, but passion wasn't one of them. He was passionate about his Savior. Now, not only fire from heaven, but there's a second scene in his life I want to look at this morning, and it's found in Matthew 20, if you want to go there. Position. We get another insight into James' character. He wasn't only passionate and insensitive, He was also uh, ambitious and a little overconfident, if you want to be honest about James. Here in Matthew 20, he and his brother tried to gain status over the other apostles. We find in verse number 21 of Matthew 20, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Now, I believe that James, along with his brother, put mom up to this. The reason I believe that is what we see in verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against their mother. No, no. They were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Why? Because they put her up to it. Uh, The mother of James and John was named Salomone or Salome. Salome, thank you. 
She was one of the women who followed Jesus, who financially supported Jesus. And Salome traveled along with them at times, and I'm sure that this scheme between them or maybe between her and them was hatched after they heard things like what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, and Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of glory, ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And they are probably thinking, huh? Thrones? We want in on that. Because they had those type of expectations. Let's have mom talk to him. She just gave money to the ministry, like people still do today. Give money and expect special treatment for it. That, that's not a new thing. That happened all the way back. Instead, Jesus promised them, you shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. James wanted a crown of glory. Jesus gave him a cup of suffering. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted a place of distinction. Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. James wanted to rule, so Jesus gave him a sword, but he didn't give him a sword to be used by him, but against him. Fourteen years after this, James would become the first of the twelve to be killed for his faith. History tells us that James preached in Judea, and he ended up a large part of his ministry in Spain, preaching in the country of Spain. But by the way, you know where else he preached? You'll never guess. The, according to the book Historia Compostolina, old James preached in Samaria. Isn't that wonderful? Sent back to the people he wanted to nuke at one time. I wonder if he did not, when he was there, have a moment of retrospection as he stood before the people. I wonder if he didn't have a thought, my, but I'm glad I listened to Jesus. I'm glad I don't feel the way I used to. I'm glad I'm changed from the person I was. After ministering in Spain, he came back to Judea, and for reasons that are not clear to us, he upset Herod Agrippa. The end of James' story from an earthly perspective uh, happens in the text that we read a few minutes ago. You remember, James wanted position. He wanted prestige. Yet this is the only time in the Bible that his name appears alone. There's a few details, uh, uh, not many details, I should say, are given about James's martyrdom here. But the Bible records for us that Herod was the one that had him killed, and his execution was by sword, which means uh, he was probably beheaded. The son of thunder had been mentored by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He allowed his passion for esteem to be redirected uh, to a better purpose. He learned to use his qualities to promote the Lord instead of promoting himself. And now his impact was so great that when Herod decided, I got to stamp out this church movement, who do I go after that would make the biggest impact on this movement? Who would, uh, who would make the biggest impression? Whose death would put a stop to all of it? And he came up with two names, James and Peter. James was a major player in the early church movement. James was the first man who had to die. And so he drank that cup that Christ gave him to drink. His influence uh, continues to this day, even though his life was short. History again records that James impacted people for Christ right up until the moment of his execution. There's an early church historian named Eusebius, and he writes about what happened at James's death. 
He says that the one who was responsible for James' death sentence, after hearing James' testimony and uh, hearing his testimony for Christ, he was so moved that he gave his heart to Christ and then confessed to the uh, soldiers that he himself also was a Christian. And so they were both led off together. On the way, he begged James to forgive him. And James, James, the one that was ever ready to pounce on those who wronged him, now looks at his accuser and says, Peace be with you, and kissed him. Then they were both beheaded at the same time. In the end, James ended up being more like Andrew, bringing people to Christ uh, to, to the very end. Somewhere along the line, James was transformed into a Christ-like dynamic Christian. James is a prototype of the passionate, dynamic, strong, ambitious Christian. But he allowed Jesus to redirect his passion. He learned to control his anger, redirect his zeal for selfish ambition to serving God. And the Lord used him for a wonderful work in the early church. What a blessing James is. And these are hard lessons for a man of James' passions to learn. But I will take men of passion over cold calculation any day of the week. It was passion that led Dr. Alvin Knutson to come to the town of Brookings and open the doors to a new Baptist church that is still in existence 51 years later. It was passion for the things of God that kept the Eloises and the Modders in this church in Brookings for decades through thick and thin. It was passion that put the Bartons on a bus route for 50 years serving and bringing kids to Christ. It is passion for music that keeps the Pigors on the piano and on the behind the pulpit leading music. It is passion for impacting children that keeps the evens teaching every week while the rest of us sit in here and enjoy the service. It is passion for children that keeps women in the nursery. My soul, thank God for the women of the nursery. Amen? Else we'd have to put up with those kids. No, I'm just kidding. It was a passion for the local church that drives our deacons to spend hours of their life every week to try to make sure everything is done right. It's a passion to do something for God that puts Brother Craig Dexter on a lawnmower four hours a week uh, mowing our lawn out here and making everything look nice. It's passion that drives young men like our interns to devote their whole life to serving God full time. It is passion that put Brother Stringer on the mission field on a, on a desolated, uh, Indian reservation trying to win Indians for Christ and has served there now for over 50 years trying to bring people to Christ. That's passion. Can I tell you today, skills are cheap. Passion is priceless. I hope you have passion for the right things. Too many people make Christianity a hobby. A hobby is something you do when you feel like it. Passion is something you do even when you don't feel like it. I'm asking you today, do you have passion? Do you have a passion for worship? Do you have passion for the Word? Do you have passion for prayer? Do you have passion for the lost? I encourage you today, be like Jesus' friend James. Live life with passion. You say, but James got killed. Hey, every man dies. Not every man really lives. I'm asking today to have a passion for the things of God. Live beyond your time frame. Do something for God that will live beyond even your death and make a difference for Him. Make an impact. Live with passion. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. The question of today is simple, friend. What's your passion? 
Everybody probably has a passion for something. I'm asking, what's your passion? I hope your passion is to serve God with every fiber of your being like James did. Even to the point of where he gave his very life for it. Do you have that kind of passion today? What does it take to stop you? Let's have everybody stand as she begins to play. The altar's open. If God spoke to your heart today, would you respond?